Attention bowlers, would you like to help your stability in your approach and at the foul line? With Stability Strikes Bowling Performance Sock, you can enhance your stability and take the edge off any foot, knee, or back pain you may have while bowling. The extra mohair cushioning in the heel and toe gives you the comfort and support to compete at your maximum potential. So go to StabilityStrikes.com today. Stability in your game is just a pair away. BowlerX.com, your online bowling equipment superstore, presents the Above180.com podcast. Tim Berg and Joey Serrar are ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews, coaching, to drilling layouts and the stars of the PBA. Now from Washington, D.C. and the Bowler's Pro Shop in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, here are your hosts, Tim Berg and Joey Serrar. This is the Above180.com podcast. Tim Berg, Joe Serrar, Mo Pinnell here. This is our fifth and final, what we perceive to be our final installment of our Ball Drilling for Dummy series. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you've missed any of the segments, please go back Above180.com. Got a tab on the top. You can go listen to all four of them. A lot of people taking some time off for vacation, so just download those via iTunes or uh, however you download the shows. But uh, great to have Joe and Mo back here. So I thought we'd begin. There's been a lot of uh, chat going on on bowlingchat.net uh, regarding two-handed bowling and two-handed ball drilling and two-handed this and two-handed that with the Jason Belmonis and Oscar Palermos and everything coming out. So, Joe and Mo, I'm going to open it up to you, open the forum up to you guys, uh, your thoughts on two-handed bowling, and I guess probably should begin with Mo and, and his initial thought on, on two-handed bowlers and if that creates really an unfair advantage to the, to the one-handed bowler like myself, like all three of us are. Well, I hate the word un- unfair because that's a subjective word. Let's just uh, talk about the benefit of two-handed bowling, and it's part of what I do when I do my seminars on to coaching, and it's never lose sight of the purpose of each part of your, del- of your approach to the lane and how you release the ball and how you deliver the ball. There are three significant parts. I call it the true system of bowling. And we got to keep in mind what the purpose of each of the segments are to create the result. And the three components of the true system of bowling are the approach, the delivery, and the bowling ball. Those are the three components. And too many times people get involved in robotics and teaching people to be robots when they bowl and just do what I tell you. But never lose sight of the purpose. The purpose of the approach is to generate energy. That's why there's no such thing as too fast a feet. So the purpose of the approach is to generate energy. If we didn't need to generate energy, we could stand at the foul line and bowl, and we know that doesn't work. So the purpose of the approach is to generate energy. Now we get to the delivery phase. I call it the delivery because it's more than the release. It's the weight transfer to the slide leg as the ball comes off your hand. So that's called the delivery. We want to transfer weight as hard as we can to the slide leg and the left side, uh, in the right hand, the left side of the body. And as we transfer that energy to the, that side of the body, we get the ball to come off our hand efficiently. So this is where the two-handed bowler has an advantage. And when we were doing seminars, Del Warren and I together about a decade ago, one, bowl, one guy in the audience, and people out of the mouths of children come the greatest quotes, said, success leaves clues. And Dell uses it, and I use it. Success leaves clues. 
two-handed bowlers are successful. That's the clue they leave. And why are they successful? Because they more effectively tran- translate the energy from the approach to the bowling ball. The transfer of energy from the approach to the bowling ball is much more effective with a two-handed bowler because they end up with a higher rev rate and more ball speed as a rule. They can do it, throw it slower. So if you're transferring more energy to the ball, you're being more effective in the delivery phase. And then it's the ball's job to use that energy effectively to increase your strike percentage. So it's approach, delivery, and then the ball, and it's the delivery part where the two-handed bowler has the advantage because the two-handed bowler can transfer more energy to the ball than the one-handed bowler can. Okay, Mo, you, you're you segueing perfectly into one of the first questions we have given by one of our listeners. How do dual angle layouts differ for a two-handed player than they would for a typical one-handed player due to their rev rate being so high? Well, two-handed bowlers are more rev dominant. Therefore, we don't need to help the ball transition faster. Because being more rev dominant, that ball's going to transition quickly. So we use control layouts for two-handed bowlers more than we use layouts that increase the ball's ability to transition. And dual-angle layouts used effectively by one-handed bowlers tend to decrease the advantage that the two-handed bowler has at the pins and they're, when they're going through the pins. So we use control layouts, which are big VAL angles, less flare with the pin to PAP distance, and larger angles to the VAL. So we're going to use larger angles for two hand bowlers, just like we would rev dominant bowlers, but they're far more rev dominant than what we traditionally see of a one handed rev dominant bowler. And we use smaller sums of the angles and more dynamic techniques in order to help the one-handed bowler get his ball to hit closer to that of a two-handed bowler so the disadvantage is, is decreased and they get closer together. Now, keep in mind that when you're transferring that much energy to the ball, controlling the ball motion can be a little touchy. So there are disadvantages to two-handed bowling. It's harder to control the transitions. So would a symmetrical ball be better for a two-handed bowler then? Absolutely. Almost all the time. We use symmetrical balls with less flare potential and no balance holes. Okay, Tim, do you have a question from one of the, your uh, listeners that have been sent to you? If not, I have a, I have a question from all. Um, okay, here, and here, if you I, guys I, out of questions, I'm looking at Ken McLaughlin's email from Australia, the one you sent to me, Joey. Oh, uh, yeah, five, with the, f- the five different there. questions. Do you want to address one of those, Mo? And, and maybe read the question prior, or, or if you'd like, I could. Yeah, let's address Kenny's question. The first one is, should there be USB-C imposed limits on RGs, total dip, and diff ratios? And what influence would this have on ball dynamics if these were eliminated? Are the, is the, are the USB-C justified in placing restrictions on these specifications in their attempt to reduce equipment influence on the sport of bowling? Will these attempts continue to work in the future given the advances in cover stock technology? Well, the answer is yes. The USBC, when they did the original system of bowling, when the USBC was in Milwaukee, and I know you went over 
uh, when Danny Spranzer was there, Joe. That was in the early 90s. The they good old set days. up these dynamic parameters in order to put a shell around what the ball drillers can do and what the manufacturers can do, especially the manufacturers, in creating bowling balls. This puts it into a finite group. And, yes, those restrictions have been in place now since 1992, and I'm in favor of them. This coming from Facebook, again on Facebook.com, find us at Taking Your Bowling Game to the Next Level. Uh, a while back on, it says, the question begins, a while back on Bowl.com, Chris Barnes did an interview talking about normal rev rate to pin distance and drilling. Example, a 300 rev rate equals a 4-inch pin to PAP. Is this a good rule of thumb? Yes and no. There are, we like to go by rev dominant or speed dominant bowlers. And pin to PAP distance controls track flare. Keeping in mind that symmetrical and asymmetrical balls have totally different criteria on pin to PAP distance. Joey and I both know that. So the answer is use the pin to PAP distance that gives you the amount of flare for your game. And the more you're speed dominant, the more you're going to need a lot of flare. The more you're rev dominant, the more you're going to need less flare. So it does in that way. Chris was giving generalities. The, the guys she was on the tour because most of them are rev dominant. In other words, Tim, in other words, somebody with lower rev rates could easily love a four inch pin in maybe 70% of the applications, yet a PBA player, even a Chris Barnes rev rate, and he's not known to be a super high rev rate guy, may find much better reactions commonly on tour with five inch pins. That's on symmetricals, on asymmetricals, it would be. Right. I, I may be the exception to that rule, Mo, in that, in a lot of, since I'm able to do testing on all these balls coming in, I will typically drill a, a four to four and a half inch pin on ball A and then a, a five and a half or six inch pin on a ball B. And I typically see very, very good ball motions in both symmetric and asymmetrics with longer pin distances. And, and my rev rate to speed is almost matched. I mean, I'm 16 and a half off the hand and right around 300 to 310 on the rev rate. And we, we know my axis rotation is a little higher than average. I've got it down to about 70 degrees with a 12 degree tilt. So can you well, explain you, this you, phenomenon? You have, you have an average tilt, but you tend to be higher in your rotation. Yes. Therefore, on asymmetrics, with longer pins, you get the ball to face up sooner. And on symmetrics, you're allowed to get your, you can get your feet and target, you get your target in front of you more, so you don't have to give away the front. So that's just a, an example there. But remember, you are also rev dominant. You think you're matched, I think you're rev dominant with the numbers you give me. Slightly rev dominant. Yeah, you're a, you're a, you're a two and a half. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, Mo, is a lot of the synthetic surfaces in the Milwaukee area are not brand new. Uh, I'd say the majority are 5, 10, 15, 20 years old, and those low-friction surfaces have now turned into higher-friction surfaces, which I think is what equates into the equation for me, let's say, in liking longer pin distances. Yeah, that's true. If you've got a high-friction surface and it comes from where... But what proprietors don't know is there are polishing methods for polishing synthetics to reduce the friction back to much closer to what it was when they were originally done. The other thing is, is that modern synthetics 
use much more textured surface on their synthetic panels. Therefore, the ball rolls, the ball reacts like it's a higher friction surface because textured surfaces of the lane allow the ball to roll on the lane easier. It's not hydroplaning on the oil. Can, can synthetic surfaces mold be refinished or reconditioned in any way after, sure. say, 5, 10, 15 years to, let's say, create a lower friction? Time. We do it all the time. And how, how is that done? With very fine screens. It doesn't get rid of the scratches, but the scratches that are put in over the years, on the edge of the scratch, there's an, there's an edge that's turned up, which creates friction with the ball. Okay, and if you run these very fine screens, and, and you got to know what you're doing to do it, you got to know. You got to get somebody that knows what they're doing. We do a ton of it. I'm no longer involved in the resurfacing. Uh, my partner, they we polish them all the time, and every time I polish, the front polish increases because you knock off those raised edges, and you smooth it out. Now you got a textured surface. But you don't have any edges sticking up, so therefore the ball ball scoots through the front part of the lane easily. It's a very, very uh, interesting technique. It's got to be done by a craftsman. Okay, Mo, I got a question for you, and this is regarding my game. If I find, or if Joey finds that I have a, a, a drilling angle that works good for me, is it best to stick to that drilling angle and then alter ball motion by just by core and by by how, uh, you know, the strength of the ball and the cover stock and asymmetric versus symmetric? Or is it better to, to play with different angles and, and that sort of thing? Well, we get into this benchmark, and we get our, if you get on bowling check, we talk about benchmark layouts, which are the layouts that are the median that give you good ball motion. It isn't too soon or it isn't too late, and they're good to use to read lanes. Now... You can take your benchmark layout, and we give them a benchmark symmetric and a benchmark asymmetric. They're very close, then the PAP distances are different, and the angle ratio is a little bit different. But you take this benchmark layout, and I like it. I like the idea of that. And when you want to drill a new ball, you drill a new ball with the benchmark layout. And then you compare it to the old ball, both balls having the same surface, and you'll identify what the new ball is and how it's different from the original ball. And when you find that ball that you that seems to work best for you, there are certain balls that match up to our games well. When you get to that ball that I say, I drilled it with my benchmark layout and it rolls really good, that may be a ball you want to drill another version of it in order to modify the motion because that ball seems to fit your game. Isn't that true, Joey? Well, without a doubt, Mo. And, you know, Tim, the question you had I think is very good. It's just... It's really hard to give a definitive answer one way or another because a lot of it depends on what kind of patterns you're going to be using this ball on. Are you going to be incorporating a weight hole in this ball and not in the other ball? Uh, and all those variables kind of change what a bowler could typically see. Mo, I got a question for you in regards to track flare, the oil rings with dual angle drillings. Can we control where the flare rings occur as the ball transitions down the lane, in other words, how many flare rings we create in oil and how many we create on the dry portion of the lane, or is that a direct effect on the ratio of the drill-to-valley angle? That has a lot to do with the 
ratio of the drilling angle to the VAL angle. Okay. And what's going to happen here, and it has to do with the design of the ball. You get a ball that because of the combination of the cover and the core, likes to fall up in the mid lane, you're going to get more flare rings in the oil and fewer in the dry. If you get a ball that doesn't roll in the mid lane, that likes to roll on the back end, then you'll get fewer flare rings in the oil and more in the dry. And all the research I've done, my ratio for the standard ball motion, the ball motion that skids, hooks, and rolls at the right point for the average player, the ratio is 2 to 3. 40% of the flare in the oil, 60% in the dry. That's the one I work off of. If I test the ball in research, and the ball, when I measure the flare rings, I measure it on every ball I test, every ball I design. If I get 50% of the flare in the oil and 50% in the design, that ball reads the mid lane. If I get a ball that has 25% of the flare in the oil and 75% of the flare in the drive, that reads the back end. Here we go again. Success leaves clues. So there's certain scientific measurements. They leave clues as to what the ball's going to do. So in other words, Mo, if we have ball A with a 60 by 40 drilling and it creates that 2 to 3 ratio, can we modify that ratio to a 3 to 2 ratio by transversing the drill to val angles, in other words, drilling it with a 40 drill angle and a 60 val angle? Right. If you want to increase the flare in the oil, you you keep the same sum if you like the, the place where the ball hits the pins, and you lower the, v, the drilling angle and raise the VAL angle to put more flare in the oil. You increase the drilling angle and decrease the VAL angle to get flare in the dry. And you see it all the time, and I talk about it all the time on the, on the forum. If you've got a guy with less tilt and less rotation, you're going to see bigger ratios because this ball automatically going to want to roll too early. So then we go to large drilling angles, small VAL angles. You get a guy with a lot of tilt, and the ball tends to get down the lane, he may have a little trouble controlling the motion, but he's got lots of tilt. Then we use smaller drilling angles and larger VAL angles to help the ball read the lane earlier and get control of the ball motion. Yeah, we use it all the time. Again, Tim Berg, Joe Sarar, finishing up our series here on Ball Drilling for Dummies, segment number five, series, uh, fifth series of this. Mo, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit here. As a couple weeks ago out in Reno, the women, Women's U.S. Open took place, and they bowled right down, uh, right down Virginia Street, bowled outside. Uh, Fremont Street. Fremont Street. Fremont Street. It was Fre Fremont Street. I'm sorry. Uh, so, Mo, I want to just get your initial thoughts on that and how, I mean, the scores were very low. Uh, women battled the elements very well, but I want to get your initial thoughts on, on the women bowling outside. I wish somebody who controls the decision-making on how people spend money to display bowling will figure out that bowling is an indoor sport. In dirt and wind and the temperature of the lane surface through either heat or cold have a significant effect on how the ball rolls, and you don't display the qualities of our good bowlers in an environment that's either a mud puddle or a Sahara Desert. No, bowling's an indoor sport. Let's get it back indoors where it belongs. In, in other words, Mo, will golf put the U.S. Open indoors? Never. Correct. 
Well, and Mo, the, the one thing, though, that was interesting is I talked to Jason Couch out there from Ebonite, and he said when the ladies were practicing earlier during the day, this was between 11 and 1, they had a practice session. He said the lanes played fairly similar than as to how they did at the stadium. But obviously, you, you move it to starting at 7 o'clock at night, which it starts out light, switches to dark, the temperature drops, the humidity drops, whatever is there, and the winds pick up. So then you got all, you add all these variables into the mix. Right, but the most significant factor there was when the wind picked up, there was so much dirt on the lane, it wasn't a true bowling surface. And uh, no, we don't, we, we don't want to bowl outside. There's too much... There's too much variability, but in that case, what made that a disaster, because there have been outside shows that have been decent, but what made that a disaster is the lanes were so dirty when the ladies bowled that, that it wasn't a good bowling surface or a true bowling surface. Okay, Mo, I have a question for you in regards to differentiating how ball motion is affected by cover-dominant balls compared to core-dominant balls, and by that we mean... When I do ball testing, well, I generally try and get a feel if a ball has a matched core to cover strength, yet there are balls coming out that purposely have stronger covers than they do cores and vice versa. You want to explain that uh, criteria a little bit, Mo? Okay. Well, this is an indirect result of the ball motion study and the graphical analysis. Graphical analysis just means that they used an Excel program to analyze the ball motion. Okay. And the break point of the bowling ball is between the first and the second transition, somewhere in the hook zone. And what that study proved, showed was that balls that are covered on it have a break point later in the hook zone, where balls that are core dominant have a break point earlier in the hook zone. And we learned that as an indirectly effort of the ball motion study. So cover-dominant balls tend to read the back end of the lane, and core-dominant balls tend to read the front end of the lane. And you know, so do you think this is why Mo Storm will typically put the same cover? Balls versus symmetrical, because asymmetrical balls are, cover, are more core-dominant. They tend to read the mid-lane and transition faster. Symmetrical balls are more cover-dominant, and they tend to read the lane later and more continuous. Yeah, core-dominant balls tend to read the back end of the lane. I mean, cover-dominant balls tend to read the back end of the lane, and core-dominant balls tend to read the mid-lane. So, Mo, on, on an unrelated note, or related, do you think this is why one of the top manufacturers, being Storm, will typically use the same cover on, say, three, four, or five balls in their line and simply change the core? Yeah, well, there's only a certain number of covers, so you do mix cores and covers. And every manufacturer does it. So you get a cover that seems to be very versatile and work good and create enough friction. If you use a stronger core, you'll get more of a mid-lane reaction out of the ball. And if you use a weaker core, you'll tend to get more of a back-end reaction. Because if you use a stronger core, it makes it less cover-dominant if it's a strong cover. If you use a weaker core, it tends to make it more cover-dominant. All the manufacturers do that. And, and is this why most weaker cores, even though we know weaker isn't always weaker, but weaker cores have higher RGs and, say, medium and lower differentials compared to a stronger core, which is typically a lower RG version? Well, if you read my article in BTM on diff ratio, which is the ratio of the intermediate diff to the total diff, it is more significant in ball motion than RGs are. 
people would get too hung up on RGs. Because remember, the only RG that matters is the RG of the PAP, not the one that's on the sheet. Okay, you know, Mo. And, well, I read that article, Mo, a few times. It, it took a few times to absorb it all. And I didn't agree with it as much then as I do now because there are times in testing we'll take a ball with a 2.57 RG, for example, and it revs up awfully quick compared to even some balls at 2.48. And I'm always wondering, how can this be with the RG being so much higher? So it, it basically is an end result of where the RG is on the PAP. Correct. Remember, remember, it's the RG of the PAP that determines the motion of the ball. And the only thing we know about the RG of the positive axis point is it's somewhere between the low and the high RG values. It, that's all we know. So is there a device on the market or in the works that will help ProShaps determine what the finished RG of a bowling ball is after drilling? Nope. Is that nope forever or nope not being worked on right now? Nope, there's no way to do it. Ah. There's an infinite number of values between the high and the low RG. And what you're seeing more when you're seeing motion is, you got to remember, covers are more significant to ball motion than cores. That doesn't mean cores don't matter, but covers are more significant. And the only way you can do the testing you want to do is to get manufacturers to make you balls with exactly the same cover stocks and then very different things. And you know what? That's freaking expensive. On that well, note, Mo. I figured it out, a test ball, a ball for testing because it has to be made by itself individually, and then it's run through production where I get mine made, so it's made with production uh, techniques. But uh, a test ball, guys, costs about 500 bucks to make every test ball. How's that for a fact? And how many test balls, Mo, do you typically manufacture before a finished product is released from Mo Rich Enterprises? Uh, take, for example, the, the new Locomotion, or, or maybe not the Locomotion, but maybe the first ball in a, in a series of balls, as opposed to, say, the, the third entry. Yeah, the third entry is usually less test balls because we know where we want to go. Right. The initial ball in a series, my first test is with three different is with is with three different test balls. Three different specs on the test ball. Okay? Now I'll get three or four of each because I'll have different styles of bowlers throw it. So initially there's nine test balls. Three different designs or combinations of covers and cores, okay, and core dynamics. It'd be the same core, but we use different densities. So we got three different covers for three different players. we got nine balls. So we have $4,500 in test balls in the first test. And then if I see what I see, what I want there, I'll usually do a second test and make another variable off the one I choose to see if I can make it a little bit better. So I guess we're talking about four different integers, and but if it doesn't work, I mean, now you start all over again, you do it again. So it's 12 balls, so you're talking $6,000 worth of test balls just to get a series just started. That's not the final tuning. That's just the beginning. 
Wow, and on that note, Mo, I think we're going to wrap things up here. Very informative. Again, uh, Mo Pinnell joining us. For more on Mo, uh, no, we did have a couple emails we didn't get a chance to, but if you got a question, go to check out bowlingchat.net. Uh, also check out morichbowling.com. I'm sure Mo would be more than happy to answer any questions you have as well there. But very informative, guys, as uh, we wrap this up here. Uh, I think uh, everyone's going to say this was a success. you have any questions, shoot us an email here, Tim at Above 180. Uh, I'll make sure the right people get it, make sure it gets to Joe and Mo, and, and uh, we'll get those answered for you. But it was a pleasure, guys. Thanks again for doing this. My pleasure. I enjoy it very much, Joey. It's always good to talk to you about these things. Both of us have different schedules, and we don't always get to chat with each other as often as we should. So I yeah, we, we got to do this more often. And, and Tim, I think you uh, you said it just right: is have the listeners, you know, over time, write in some questions to to you, to me, and and we'll have a follow up show, and maybe we'll entitle it "What We Missed," and because I'm sure there's a few topics that you know we touched base on but didn't really expound on. And this way here, we can kind of do a, a wrap up for for the listeners, so they can just so have we, all their questions answered. What we missed show somewhere in the beginning of the season. That sounds great to me. For Tim Berg, Joe Serrar, good luck and good bowling.